1: For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com.
0: This episode of Canada Land is brought to you by Douglas, a mattress that is trusted by more than 200,000 Canadians from coast to coast to coast. It's a great mattress at a very reasonable price point. It comes with a 20-year warranty and a great deal for our listeners. Douglas is giving you a free sleep bundle with everything. Each mattress purchase, get the sheets, pillows, mattress, and pillow protectors free with your Douglas purchase today. Visit douglas.ca slash CanadaLand to claim this offer. That is douglas.ca slash CanadaLand. Hey, I need you to pay close attention to this message. It is not an ad. This is about CanadaLand, and this is about you. You need to know that the news crisis is about to get a lot worse. You've heard about the layoffs. We're about to have news closures It disappears at the end of the month and then we will not offer it. We need your support. We need to keep news coverage alive in Canada. Go right now to canadaland.com slash join. And thank you. It's becoming really clear that the most important thing about this crowdfunding campaign is this Thunder Bay podcast that we want to make. That's the most important thing. That's what's connecting with you guys. That's why people are signing up above anything else, above any of the things we're giving away, the beer, the t-shirts, above uh, all the other goals that we have. Making this serialized investigative podcast about Thunder Bay is something that we just need to do. It is the thing that most people are citing when they sign up. And in addition to the new patrons we're getting in support of that project, we're getting something that is uh, as valuable, more valuable than the financial support. We're getting information and tips about what to investigate when we're in Thunder Bay. And the situation, as we're coming to understand it, there's even more going on there than we realized. There are good investigators doing journalism in Thunder Bay. There are not enough investigators. There is not nearly enough journalism being done in Thunder Bay. And um, one thing that's really clear is, as As urgent as this feels to us, and as much as we know we need to make this show, we need to do it right. We need to stand firm to our fundraising goal. This needs to be funded properly. This is not a show that you want to parachute journalists into a community that they're not familiar with and uh, quickly get something. You really need to show respect for the communities there, the history there, the people who know their way around there, and form those partnerships and tell this story properly. And a a, a generous maniac named Andrew Sullivan came forward and has made like an incredible offer to try to speed up this process by which we fund this podcast. Here is Andrew explaining what he's going to do to make this show happen.
1: I think Canada Land needs more subscribers. So I thought we could get together and I would put up a thousand bucks and then all of the rest of the audience could also put up some money. So the idea is that I have $1,000. And for each $1 subscriber per month who comes along, I give Canada Land $1. Uh, And I'll do that up to $5. So each $5 a month Canada Land subscriber who comes along, I give Canada Land $5. And if somebody gives more than $5, say $10 a month or something like that, I will also give Canada Land $5. And at the end of this, we hope, there'll be $1,000 in the kitty in order to send somebody to Thunder Bay. I'm interested in this story. I don't know anybody else who is uh, covering it. I'm not a northerner, but I've always been interested in the issues around the the country, and I want to hear about these things. Uh, We're a tiny media market. We uh, don't have the size um, or benefactors that American markets do, and so we've got to do this thing ourselves. If we want to have a a viable uh, media market here in Canada, we're going to have to pay for it.
0: offer is live right now. Thank you, Andrew. Please check out our site. Check out patreon.com slash Canada Land. We have wonderful things to give you as a sign of our appreciation, and we are going to hit it. We're going to get this money together. We're not close to there yet. We have a long way to go, but we are going to get the funding we need to make this podcast. Thank you to all of our new patrons. Welcome. And as I've said before, we are going to keep ads running throughout this crowdfunding campaign because we can't afford to lose that revenue, It'd be counterproductive to a fundraising campaign. So this episode of Canada Land is brought to you by Hover. Buying a domain name for your passion should be the first and biggest step to building your personal brand online. Go to hover.com slash CanadaLand for 10% off of any of the 400 plus domain extensions offered. smart. Not like everybody says, like dumb. I'm smart. And I want respect. I do. I can't help it. I want respect from people of letters. The New Yorker magazine. It was a big deal in my house growing up. I think it wasn't a lot of Canadian homes. It, It remains, at least in my mind, the authoritative periodical of the American intellectual class. And no matter how my outlook broadens, no matter how many snoozy, bougie, long-form articles I abandon halfway in, or, or how many painfully unfunny Andy Borowitz humor columns I read, I'm still that kid, mostly reading the cartoons, but also trying to make sense of what the impossibly urbane and sophisticated writers are going on about in all of those endless columns of perfectly formatted text with no photos. The thing still has an aura for me. Again, I think it does for a lot of Canadians, which which might explain why so many Canadians gravitate towards The New Yorker and why so many Canadians are prominent within The New Yorker. Canadians like Malcolm Gladwell, like Bruce McCall, and like today's guest, Adam Gopnik. Adam Gopnik is the former art critic and the former Paris correspondent for The New Yorker. He's currently their staff writer, writes a lot of essays. He, he, He writes a fair amount of stuff for The New Yorker about Canada. And his new book is called At the Stranger's Gate, Arrivals in New York. He joins me in a minute. And look, as much as I desperately crave validation from those who have earned their New York literati bona fides, I simultaneously have this impulse to challenge and provoke these guys. I mean, they're not so smart, right? I'm in over my head. Wait for it. This episode of Canada Land is brought to you by Chris LaFleur, Erica Reuter, Rob Perlman, William Whitehead, Sarah Emmons, Keir Loney, Alex Grickmanoff, and Niloufar Amazade. We asked Niloufar to tell us a little bit about herself and why she decided to become a Canada Land patron.
1: My name is Niloufar Amazade, I'm a Canadian journalist and I support Canada Land because it breaks and frames stories in more comprehensive, timely, transparent, and
0: refreshingly curious ways. Help As the largest online therapy provider in the world, BetterHelp can provide access to mental health professionals with a wide variety of expertise in mental health. Because you listen to this podcast, you get 10% off of your first month Domains are are kind of like important things. I've got a lot of different domains. I've had different domains. Canada land has different domains We've got Canada land show.com and we've got Canada dot news and somebody once bought for us Canada pizza And depending on what I'm doing, I kind of whip out a different URL Like if I'm investigating a story, you better believe it's CanadaLand.news. dot news But if I'm if I'm talking about the podcast it's Canada land show I still haven't found a good use for Canada pizza, but it's coming it is important to your online brand to have all the domains you need. So you can show the online community who you are and what you're passionate about with a unique domain for your idea. Hover also offers personalized email that matches your domain and further supports your online identity. They have over 400 domain extensions to choose from to help you brand yourself online. That's a lot of choices to help you find the perfect domain name. Let's say you are a designer or other creative professional, you can use the .design instead of the .com or .biz. If you use .design, you're telling everybody exactly what you do. Stand out and brand yourself online with the perfect domain name for you or your business and the best part is that .design domains are on sale for the entire month of October at Hover for $5.99. That is 85% off of your first year. It's half the price of a .com. New customers can even get an additional 10% off of any of those 400 plus domain extensions because they listen to this podcast. Go to hover.com slash Canada land. Finally, this episode is brought to you by Sock Club. I am in the club. Our new socks are made by Sock Club. And when they were designing these Canada Land socks that we're giving away as part of our crowdfunding campaign, they took it upon themselves to come up with four different designs of how to employ our logo into sock form. And like, it was impossible to decide. They were all awesome. They make really nice socks. And uh, as a sock club member, I get like a pair of socks every month. And I can't tell you, like it's really nice to get a pair of socks in the mail. They're always stylish, made in America quality socks. And they're always, I don't know, there's a nice feeling about getting A a surprise in the mail. I always forget that I'm getting socks and then I get socks and it feels really good. You can pay as you go. There's a three-month plan, a six-month plan, a year-long plan. You can gift a membership to Sock Club. It's a gift that does keep on giving because the socks keep on coming. Go to SockClub.com and get 15% off using the discount code CanadaLand at checkout. Give Sock Club this holiday season. So how have you been eating? Eating? Um, in Toronto.
2: I have barely been eating, actually. I i don't usually have much lunch, and so I didn't have much lunch yesterday. Went out to dinner. My uh, lawyer agent took us out to dinner. My folks out to dinner last night, and that was nice. A place called Opus. Oh, yeah. But, yeah, good food. It's getting better in Toronto. Yeah. Oh, I think it's much better. I had a really good meal at a place called... What was it called now? I'm losing my mind. But it was kind of regional, you know, farm-to-table stuff with a lot of Niagara Valley wines. And that was the most impressive thing about it, you know, was that the, the white wines were really good.
0: Yeah, there's some nice yeah. wines. There's a, a, like a mini movement in, in you know, yeah. trying to represent, what is this place, Borealis, and then there's a Farmhouse
2: Tavern. And there's Maybe it was Farmhouse Tavern. Is that sound, Yeah, that sounds like the, it had a name like that. It was like, if it wasn't Farmhouse Tavern, it was Green Market Brasserie uh, yeah. or something like that. You know, when I was growing up, Canadian wines were famously undrinkable. Yeah. And these wines were really good. They're like, you know, good Alsatian wines. I think you got like decent table wines. We're yeah. at that level now. Yeah, yeah you exactly, know? which is not bad. Actually, I know this isn't our subject, but when I was in BC, when I did the Massey Lecture, went to Vancouver, you actually had first rate Pinot Noir there. But apparently they make so little of it, that it never gets exported. You never see it even, even here.
0: Uh-huh. We still have all all kinds of crazy rules about even taking it from one province to the other. Oh, really?
2: Oh, I didn't, I wasn't aware. And
0: uh, the LCBO, I I believe, is the largest purchaser of alcohol in the world because it's done.
2: Done through. The 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 entire province
0: buys en masse. Right. And now they just announced that that's how they're going to sell marijuana as well. Is that right?
2: Yeah. Through, it's going to be a nightmare. I, I hadn't smoked weed since I was a high school kid in Montreal and I got shingles this past summer. And we happen to be in Colorado, and you can write the, the rest of the, the story.
0: Um, but yeah, no, it, it's getting better here. You, I, you wrote that Toronto is a Scottish dowager dressed up in leggings.
2: Did I say that? I'm you did. And what was the piece? I,
0: I, I About I, Ignatieff? Yes. I've been kind of uh, jumping around, from around piece the, to piece yeah. and, and copying and pasting. So well, I I, you No, know,
2: I'm a Montrealer, and so I have a Montrealer's old uh, prejudices against Toronto, which are probably both dated and unfair. But I always do feel that way a bit about it. You know, my favorite book about Toronto in the day, you know, when Toronto was really Toronto, is uh, Bruce McCall's book. I don't know if you've ever read it. It's called Thin Ice. It's his memoir of growing up poor and Scottish in Toronto in the 1940s yeah. and early 50s. It's a wonderful book. And the description of Good Gray Toronto is just will stop your heart. You know that
0: uh, <laughs> it's a very different. I mean, my uh, I, I'm a Torontonian by birth who defected and
2: went to school and went to school in, to school in, in Montreal and stuck yeah. around and fell in
0: love with right. the place. So yeah. yeah, I'm very quick to agree with you. I mean, it's changed. It still is yeah. a Scottish dowager in mm-hmm. leggings, but yeah. now she's got a fixie bike and <laughs> chunky yeah. glass uh, frames, and yeah. it's getting better. But it's you know, m- my dad's family they came through Montreal. Um, Jewish immigrants and ended up in Winnipeg and and my mother's family is from Toronto and and the British thing in Toronto, like my grandfather growing up in the ward, the shtetl that you talk about, that you hear about in Winnipeg and the Jewish culture in Montreal, Toronto, it really feels like the community was in the shadow of something else.
2: Yeah. You know, oddly enough, my wife's family are all Winnipeg, Uh Martha, and her father is Winnipeg Jewish and her mother was Winnipeg Icelandic. So that's a real kind of uh, Romeo and Juliet story about that, too. But anyway, yes, Winnipeg Jews had a distinct identity. Montreal Jews had a distinct identity. And Toronto Jews were passing for for the most part.
0: Yeah, the the battle continues. (laughs) (laughs) Okay, so you, you write about moving from Montreal to New York, 1980?
2: 1980, summer of 1980,
0: yeah. And... It's an engaging story. You tell it well. It's a story that I've heard before of, you know, aspirational people from Canada or anywhere yep. coming to New York and sort of this, you know, you get the squalid apartment in the basement and it was the Upper yep. East Side. Yeah. And even, you, you know, all you could dream, you write, you know, Neil Simon, like the most
2: successful playwright of his time. He can't afford one more bedroom. No, exactly. Until he became the most successful playwright of his time, he was still stuck in his first apartment.
0: Yeah. I love these stories. And, you know, growing up in Toronto and visiting New York as a kid, you're like, probably any North American city you visit New York and you're like, oh, this is what we're trying to do. (laughs) Yes. And it has an incredible grip and then you read these stories of coming to New York. Is New York still New York? Because that story that you tell of kind of coming, showing up with nothing but your dreams and trying to make it is the classic New York story. But my experience is there, like, no one could even afford that basement apartment right.
2: in the Upper East Side. I, I, it still exists, but I'm not, I think it's probably being used as a, you know, storage room by a, a hedge fund <laughs> manager these days. It's a big question. You know, one of the uh, things that comes up a couple of times in the book is uh, I was uh, taken with uh, Lena Dunham's series, Girls, right? Yeah. Because it's a very similar sort of story, only set in the, in the what do we call them now? The aughts, the teens, the sure. 2010s, not the... Uh, the 1980s. And you know there's this obvious geographic difference, which is that the great uh, suction pump that drew people from Brooklyn into Manhattan for 150 years is now turned on the opposite way, and it drives people out of Manhattan and into Brooklyn. And that's where a series like that set. That's where all of that kind of experience is set. Nonetheless, there's a, a larger difference. I try to write about it in the book, that we were arrived, and this sounds a little grandiose, maybe, but not false, that we were the last ambitious generation, your, just your sense. We expected to start in a small apartment and slowly work your way up the ladder of the mm-hmm. city. That didn't seem impossible. Uh, whereas I was very struck that in Lena Dunham's show, the feeling is that you are entrapped by wherever you land, you know? And it's actually a very funny thing because my first sort of job, you know, sort of job being the kind of job, you, you don't, it's not really the job you want, but it is a job, was it uh, GQ Magazine, Gentleman's Quarterly Magazine. And I loved it. I loved being there. I thought, oh, this is in a pre-internet age, just to be in a place where words were being turned into print seemed extremely uh, glamorous and forward. And in that series, Lena Dunham series, she gets exactly the same job at GQ magazine, and she feels entombed by it. She feels that she'll never get out. Yeah. And I think that that's generationally uh, significant. And I share my office at The New Yorker now with a a young, wonderful young writer, and she said to me once, we were talking about just these things, she said, you guys were ambitious. We just want everything to be adequate. And we're just struggling <laughs> for the adequate. Oh, well, there's some interesting differences. It's the exact same job. Uh, is it? Because
0: Lena Dunham's character works in the advertorial department. She
2: works in the advertorial department, but she's doing, I was doing rewriting fashion copy. Right. right. Which was essentially the same thing, because what you're responding to is what the advertisers need. Maybe in terms I'm making of too much of it, but yeah. it is interesting that, you yeah.
0: know, the, the, the story of literary ambitions, right. and now you would be writing something that is specifically for- It is
2: explicitly, you know, in a fashion magazine.
0: Another important difference might be that you came to New York uh, aspirationally, and Lena Dunham, and that's what I thought watching that whole series, this is a certain class of girl. Right. She was born New Yorker, right? In the series, she is herself. Yeah, yeah but- that, that now the young generation of New York feel to me like they are members of the overclass. Right, they're not coming from from elsewhere with nothing in their pockets. They are either born into artistic circles in New York or they they're trust fund kids. Right. Um, and you know, this is what happens when you reverse that situation. Yeah. Because you know, I think that I'm going to lecture you about New York. This is ridiculous. <laughs> you tell me if I'm onto something here. It seems to me that there's something built into the conception of New York that you've got an island where the people at the top are cohabitating on the same island as people, you know, who are in squalid apartments, you know, Alphabet City, the the punk scene or whatever it is. And that there's a economy where that's, that underground feeds into the highest levels. When you kind of force that bohemian or whatever you want to call it class further and further into Brooklyn, what I noticed when I lived there is that it was almost like they were just another commuter class. And- living amongst like whatever hipster, bohemian pretensions thereof in Montreal, these were actual bohemians who, bohemian. who did nothing in yeah. Montreal all day but work on whatever diorama or, right. or a noise art project. I've never met more ambitious and hardworking hipsters than the yeah. ones I met in New York. You'd see them on the subway, like there'd be a neighborhood where like Puerto Rican people would get off. There'd be a neighborhood where black people get off. And there'd be a neighborhood where the hipsters would get off. And they'd get on in the morning. They would clock in every day and they would go to work and they'd work their asses off in Manhattan. And then they'd go home. And I wonder if they're not working on the next incredible, interesting, edgy yeah. artwork Because they are now feeding that beast just just to stay, just to stay in New York.
2: I always say when I I have a bunch of somewhat younger friends, you know, you get to that point where if somebody's in their late thirties, they seem to be like a youngster, right? But (laughs) we're all in Williamsburg. I have a very unretentive memory for names and times. Whenever I'm going over to have dinner, I just follow the hats, you know, onto the L train. (laughs) You just follow the pork pie hats and right, right, right. and, and I know where I'm going. So yes, you have those gatherings. I think it's true and significant that for the first time in modern history, there's no Bohemia in Manhattan, no mm-hmm. avant-garde community. And you're absolutely right that the classic cultural economy, if you want to use that term, was that the avant-garde frontier produced new images, new art, new ideas, new music, which then got recycled into the, uh, into the money economy, into the larger economy. Now, some people find that appalling. I find it neutral. It's just part of the way uh, cosmopolitan societies work. But nonetheless, that was part of it, too. And you're quite right that that's now... I, don't, I hesitate to say that it's stopped, right? Because one of the biggest mistakes we make in life is to think that our lack of familiarity, our lack of insight, is the same thing as something not existing, right? Mm-hmm. So I don't know that world well enough. There's a great novel or memoir to be written about what it meant to be 20 and ambitious in Crown Heights. But certainly the primary experience you get of New York now, it's one I've written about a lot, is of homogenization, terrible homogenization. Mm-hmm. Whereas, and I write about it in At the Stranger's Gate, when I was when I was a kid, but nonetheless, I would put my sneakers on on a Saturday morning and just wander, walk in that classic New York manner through all the neighborhoods, and there were distinct neighborhoods through which one could wander, distinct in style, distinct in architecture, Lower East Side, Tribeca, Soho itself, all had a specific... Angle of attack, a specific kind of restaurant, kinds of languages heard, all of that now is gone. The architecture remains in part, but the variety, the pluralism is much diminished. And it's, uh, it's an enormous loss. You know, you walk through Soho now. The Soho I describe in the book was still very much a coherent village of art, a little civilization, a little anthropology with its own rules, you know, where you went to look at art, where you didn't go to look at art, when you went. And now it's simply another mall. It's another retail mall. I know that to overly complain about that is to deny the rules of change that are part of being a modern person, part of modernity. But it is painful, and I think it's bad for the city, too. I actually wrote a long essay about it, or not a long essay, a short essay about it, and Mayor Bloomberg, when Bloomberg was married, he read it, and out of the blue, I got an indignant phone call from Mayor Bloomberg denying that this was so. There was more off-Broadway theater than there had ever been before, and you know weren't, weren't looking right. at these things. So it was touching that he was <laughs> annoyed by the notion, but I do think it's I do think it's the case.
0: Yeah, and the art world that you establish yourself in there
2: is vanished. I mean, there's still an art world, There's a world of galleries yeah. and uh, and painters and and Saturday mornings in Chelsea and so on, but its coherence is much diminished. And I'd even be inclined to say, you know, one of the I think really I hesitate to use the word tragic, one of the sad things that's happened is that. You know, the old model of art being shown in galleries, contemporary art being shown in galleries, when you think about it, was incredibly generous, right? Because 99% of the people who came in to look at the pictures were never going to buy anything. And yet, that was the model of how you how you showed art. Mm-hmm. Now, so much happens at art fairs, right? We're in Basel or Miami or something, where people who have the money to get there go for the sole purpose of shopping for art. Yeah, And so... Art's always going to be attached to money. I think it's naive. Not it's worse than naive. I think it's unhistorical, not what history shows you to think, oh well, there was once a time when art and money were separate and now we've one has joined the other and corrupted it. But there's a difference between seeing and shopping, if that makes any sense. There's a difference between having the gallery open so you can go in and see the pictures sure. with without a penny in your pocket and having the art in Miami where you go specifically to shop. I very found different
0: class of people. Very different
2: class of people. Very different experience. Yeah. Very different experience.
0: I have to imagine that AIDS had a lot to do with the changing, and that is a tragedy of, of the impact that had. And Frank Dershowitz talks about this, that you know there's a talented generation wiped out, uh, in the impact that had on New York.
2: Uh, yeah, I think this year I write about that in the book, some I own saw in, in a different, from a different perspective, from yeah. a different context, you know, working at a men's fashion magazine, which was largely staffed by gay men. That was my introduction to that world. It's still shocking when we think about it in, in retrospect. And as I say in the book, one of the things when I went back to look at the masthead of that magazine that i had started, uh, very few of the, of the men I'd worked with were still alive yeah. uh, 30 years later.
0: I hesitate to ask you this because I know you've been asked it before every time you come here, and it's Canada's <laughs> weird—I uh, don't know—it's a, it's a, it's a vanity and a self-obsession, but it's also insecurity. But I got to ask you about the Canadian in New York thing. You know, you bring up Bruce McCall, and then you got like Malcolm Gladwell and yourself, and you know, like Graydon Carter. Graydon Carter. There are all of these Canadians who almost become more New York than New York. They well, adopt the city and they become.
2: But the thing about us is we want to be New York, right? New York for us was the aspirational Everybody who comes to place. <laughs> New York wants to be New York. Well, if you've grown up in New York, look, I can see it. My kids, right, grew up in New York. Spent a little time in Paris before, but they basically grew up in New York. It's all they know. And they are singularly unimpressed by New York. Until they go away. My son went away for the first time, went to work in Baltimore as a bartender mm-hmm. in a hipster bar in Baltimore. And when he came back at the end of the summer, he said he was so pleased to be back in New York for the first time in his life. He had a sense of <clears throat> the expansiveness opportunity, the width of uh, entertainment that was in New York. Growing up, he and his sister had none of the uh, that aspirational sense, obviously, of getting to New York. I think Canadians tend to have it. And I think because Canadians are adaptable people in lots of ways, they learn the codes of things very quickly. We tend to luxuriate in our New Yorkness in a way that, that others may not. Also because all the Canadians in New York who I know, and there obviously is thousand exceptions, who I don't, tend to keep their connection to Canada very strong and sort of if I may say so, kind of exploited in a certain ways. I'm really, a, I'm really a Canadian. Well, right? it's there when you need it. Yeah, you remember that old Saturday Night Live sketch? You two remember the frozen caveman lawyer? Yeah. Uh, you know, and he always. I'm, I'm saying, just a humble. I'm caveman. just a frozen caveman. What do I know about your complicated laws? Well, we all play that a little bit. I'm just a frozen Canadian. You can play the nape <laughs> when you need it. Yeah, exactly. Right, and I think that. But Graydon and
0: Carter, in any other uh, right context, would not want you to know he's a prairie boy.
2: Yeah, exactly, exactly. So I think that that's. Uh, it's the frozen caveman part that's part of the appeal. You know, it's one of the things that helped me find a tone when I started writing mm-hmm. uh, in New York, is to be not from here, to be observing. I'll tell you one other thing, and it isn't just writers. It's also, you know, the other great export is comedians, famously, right, from Canada's uh, South. And that's a related thing. It's also about having a uh, an alien point of view mm-hmm. on what you're experiencing. And it's also having memories of a more... Canadians hate when you say this because they see themselves as being the inheritors of a cracked and damaged and difficult place. They want to be, you know, more romantic that way. But in fact, Canada tends to be a more coherent place to come from if you're arriving in New York. All right, we'll get to that. So Martin Short, for instance, in his charming memoir of what's it called? Um, I must say, I must say. Yeah, right, uh, the Ed Grimley. right. right, Right, Exactly. He talks about, first of all, of growing up on Avenue Road in Hamilton, right? Is the mm-hmm. ultimate Canadian street name. It's an avenue and it's also <laughs> right, a road. Right, right. But he talks about loving Frank Sinatra. This will seem remote, but it, it relates. Loving Frank Sinatra as a kid growing up in Hamilton and arriving in the States and discovering that you weren't supposed to love Frank Sinatra. That if you were of a certain age, you know, if you were yeah. 20-something in the 70s, Sinatra represented everything that was Nixonian and old and dated and Vegas that's what's to be rejected that's what's to be rejected right you couldn't be a Joni Mitchell fan and Frank Sinatra fan people thought you were it was an affectation I had exactly the same experience yeah crazy Sinatra fan and also more broadly a fan of uh what they now call the American songbook you know the the blue room the place I write about our little tiny apartment we called the blue room after Rogers and Hart song and they all that all that music all that culture seemed to me to be continuous it was Gershwin it was Rogers and Hart it was Sinatra and it was uh, Bob Dylan and Simon and Garfunkel and and what else?
0: Because you were peering down on the culture in its totality, you, yeah, were, you
2: weren't in it in exactly, the exactly, precisely. Mm-hmm. So we weren't aware of these very sharp political fault lines mm-hmm. that were that were divvying it up. And as a consequence, we had—I hesitate to use this word because it's an, also a word the Canadians are allergic to—a somewhat more innocent view of American culture than Americans did themselves.
0: Do you feel like you are? suspected by New Yorkers and, uh, by, and just by others for, for being Canadian. I, and I, I I bring up this rather vicious uh, takedown piece that James Wolcott wrote, but there was one line where he right. refers to you as an earnest little eager beaver. And if there isn't a, a, an anti-Canadian Canadians flag, <laughs> like <laughs> yes. a little covert dig at you for being Canadian. <laughs> I don't know I what think it is. It's,
2: look, I think it's true. Canadians tend to be raised to be courteous and raised to be polite. That's part of being uh, mm-hmm. part of being Canadian. You know, my favorite Canadian joke, you know, how do you get 25 Canadians out of a pool? You say, would you please get out of the pool, right? And do, Canadians are socialized to be extremely polite and to be courteous. And I think that's certainly true. My wife is the most painfully polite person you will ever meet. She mm-hmm. combines Icelandic courtesy with Canadian courtesy with her own natural form of... uh, like uh quite a cocktail Yes, <laughs> I was going to say. Yeah. So I think that for people who, you know, it's possible to respond to things as... Uh, what is intended as as good manners can read as disingenuousness. I suppose that's possible.
0: I think that there's a sense of uh, is our innocence believable? Are we just uh, observing to absorb? Right. And, it, exactly. Uh, you know that, exactly. Uh, the, you know the, the, you're suspicious but, of the nice guy. Right. Yeah. Exactly. And and you know. Gladwell at his worst, it just feels like almost he's so wide-eyed and innocently observing everything that you – like, well, where's the morality here? Yes. Like, you know, There's a, almost a celebration of marketing in a lot yeah. of it. And you, you wonder, could this not benefit from a bit of an American, like, take a position? And cynicism
2: you know? and, and, and side-taking. I, that's probably true. Look, I make no apologies for good manners. I think they're something that's badly missing in the world.
0: I'm trying to bring a bit of rudeness to Canada. But we'll see if we can find some
2: consensus. We have enough of that. We have enough of that in the um,
0: Okay. So let's talk about this essay you wrote, uh, We Could Have Been Canada, where you talk about Canada as the, as the, the model liberal country.
2: As always, and I say this not, not apologetically, but just descriptively, the titles and blurbs in a magazine piece are not chosen by the author, as you probably know. <laughs> so that wasn't my title, though right. I'm perfectly content to live with it. So what I was writing about is there are a bunch of new books about the American Revolution saying basically that it wasn't such a great revolution and that it wasn't so American, that there were lots of ways in which what happened in America was part of a larger, for lack of a better word, progressive movement in what we call radical Whiggism in uh, Britain and in in North America and even extending to India in the, in the empire, and that we make a mistake in America if we see it as being... Uh, uniquely American. The other point worth making is that the American Revolution. This is in the books I was I was reviewing. Is the American Revolution, far from being a kind of uh, pageant of uh, glorious victories, was an incredibly bloody and brutal, horrible war fought in a, in a uh, not just violent way, but in a cruel way. You know, people being flogged and tarred and feathered and lynched all the time. And as we all know, was fought not only With the existence of slavery, but fought in certain respects on behalf of slavery, on behalf of, you know, the British were more powerfully abolitionist at that point than the Americans were in the terrible story, you know, in uh, Hamilton, the great musical, Mm -hmm. as the climax of Act One is the Battle of Yorktown, of course, all played um, brilliantly by uh, enacted by African American actors. But in truth, at Yorktown itself, the British were protecting escaped slaves. And when the Americans won, they took those escaped slaves and sent them back into slavery. Mm-hmm. And that's a piece of the American story that Americans don't often hear. And so the question was, was there a kind of another model that wasn't inherently violent? Because the violence of the American Revolution, the persistence of slavery and so on, then set up the Civil War, which was one of the most violent wars of in, that had ever been fought uh, until that time. And then it set up and turned the... Uh, apartheid and terror of Jim Crow, sure. and so on. And,
0: and it, it's argued that even it baked into the American psyche and the way of doing it. Violence is just... Yes,
2: exactly. I've, and I've written about that at a great length. And you say, well, you know, look at Canada, which had you know very different history, but nonetheless, instead of having a violent revolution to establish itself as a country, had a series of incremental progressive reforms that led the country away from Britain and eventually to <coughs> independence through a parliamentary model. And I know Canadians don't want us to, don't want Canadians to idealize Canadian history, Canadian country. And of course, there are, you know, a thousand injustices and and, uh, tragedies and we can find in Canadian history. Goes without saying or should. But on the whole, by historical standards, by the standards of the planet and the history of humankind, it's generally an exceptionally peaceful and prosperous and pluralist Evolution,
0: yeah, you know. no, I mean, no question, and and um, you've taken heat from I know Canadian historians right. who who say, well, what what he's missing is that Canada couldn't have been Canada had America not had the Revolution and been, and I won't
2: take issue with I, I like, but the that's historical. one of those arguments. That's one of those arguments that's uh, reductio ad absurdum. Nothing could have been anything sure. unless something else yeah. had been something else. Yeah, the point is Canada has a history that Canadians should be very proud of of tolerance and coexistence. You know, one of my favorite books is uh, John Rostan Saul's little book, favorite Canadian books, about LaFontaine and Baldwin. And there was the moment, right, a key moment in the history of Canada when LaFontaine and Baldwin stood together on a on a, on a terrace in, uh, not a terrace, uh, uh, Canada, a balcony in Old Montreal, what we now call Old Montreal, in the midst of a riot, and they remained united. They said there is no lower Canada without upper Canada. There's no... Uh, There's no future for us as a people that doesn't include a French fact and an uh, an Anglic fact. That's a huge thing, the notion that you would try and build a country out of the coexistence of two people with radically different uh, heritages and radically different religions and all of that. And on the whole, it's worked. On the whole, it's worked. My complaint is not so much
0: with the historical perspective you bring, but with what it means for us in a contemporary setting. And whether it was by design or not, and I no reason to believe it was, your piece came amidst a flurry of pieces in the Trump era of not we could have been Canada, but can't we be Canada or look at Canada and Mm -hmm. and Canada increasingly used as a rhetorical tool. Right. And it's interesting how you describe Canada. I think you describe it quite accurately. Uh, For most of its history, the political, educational, diplomatic and media elites of Canada have often belonged to the same circle. Uh, The elite tend to rise (coughs) through the same small number of excellent and cheap universities. They work at the same newspapers or at the CBC. And so stories about the ascent to power tend to get tangled up in old apartments rented lovers shared and divorces remembered
2: was this right when was writing? this was not in that piece was no it?
0: Uh, this was oh, this in this must be your your ignatia yeah Ignatyef, and right. and and uh, in, in the in, in the piece that we are discussing right uh yeah i'm, I'm just am just i'm sort of making a pastiche of no, all, that's all fine, of her writings fine, fine. i just i don't have
2: um, a, i don't have a sufficiently keen memory for uh, well the, the, the internet remembers <laughs> the everything the, yeah.
0: in the piece about canada and american and and uh, the most recent, the recent piece we're discussing, piece. yeah, Why? you say there is something to be said however however small for government by an efficient elected elite devoted to compromise. Take all it all together. And, you know, reading that as a Canadian and not as a, as a person who used to, I mean, you're a Canadian as well, but as somebody who who lives in Canada, It can be stultifying, that elite and the idea that we have this moderate, efficient, elected elite, all of whom, of course, it has to be said, I mean, you say it, um, they come from the same circles. They come from-
2: Justin Trudeau.
0: (laughs) Right, I mean, this is our Bush, you know, uh, that they they, they come from the same universities, they are overwhelmingly white and male. In a country that is increasingly less so, it can be suffocating. And the comparison of, you know, Americans looking to Canada, that that American gaze at Canada it seems to be occasionally of use to Americans. But in Canada, where 90, 95% of what we read, I mean, you as, as a writer for The New Yorker are a more influential writer in Canada than the people who write for Macleans or The Walrus. I mean, though, the, you, you write for a more popular magazine in With, Canada. Oh, within Canada, yeah. Within Canada than our but. own magazine. So we are... You know, as you, we're keenly aware of what Americans think of us, and, and, and I submit to you that it's harming us, I guess. This, it's blocking us from maturing because you can't talk about anything. You know, there are people who are trying to raise police injustice, the police killing black people right. in Canada, racism in Canada. Yeah, but it's nothing like in the States. You hear that and you say, uh, well, what about Islamophobia and racism of that sort? A guy walked into a mosque in Quebec, in Quebec City yeah, and, yeah, and opened fire. Right. And be, well, it's nothing like the shootings in the states. In fact, that hasn't happened in the states. That's ha- no. happened. here. A Trump supporter came and just slaughtered people here, and we don't deal with it. You, w- you would not even know that it happened. It feels mm-hmm. like we d- we don't have the mechanism to hold ourselves accountable or to take a stand because we're forever favorably. Say we're better. We're
2: better than them at least. Well, yeah, yeah, and it shuts everything down. Right. You know? Well, I, look, that's always going to be the case when you have a small nation, relatively speaking, alongside a big nation, and you know you find the same thing in Australia, apropos. Great Britain, you found or you did find and I think it's changing now, even though they're separated by thousands of miles of ocean. You know, young Australians tended to measure themselves against the opinion of, uh, of the Brits. Yeah, uh, the colonial hangover. The colonial cringe and all yeah. of that. That's a deep human thing. In fact, one of my favorite books about, you know, those aspirational pilgrimages is Clive James' book about coming from Sydney to London in the early 60s. Very similar thing, though the geography couldn't be more different. Look, here's my feeling about it is, of course... Canada is a place that has a thousand flaws. It's a s- society made up of human beings. How could it not? And simply saying, oh, well, at least we're not the Americans is not very analgesic. That doesn't help the specific problems. When I think of Canada as being a model liberal country, and I've used that phrase, and I'll use it again unapologetically, I think exactly the essence of liberalism, and I don't mean liberalism in the you know, Trudeau family sense, but in the, in the philosophical sense, if I can use that word, is that it's committed to reform liberalism is committed to reform. It's committed permanently to reform in the belief that we are always in need of reform. That's why conservatives hate liberals, because they think they're constantly trying to reform things that don't need reform. Mm -hmm. And so a liberal country is one that is constantly saying, oh my goodness, we need to reform that, right? We need to reform the treatment of indigenous and first nations people. That was wrong. We need to reform treatment of women. We need to introduce uh, uh, even quotas in cabinets and so on, all of those things. So the answer to all of the objections, which are real enough, is not, oh, you see, we're just as evil as those guys are, but to say we have to commit to a program of reform. And then the next question you ask is, are there people committed to those reforms and are they happening? And, you know, there's the one that I think about, because it's a subject I write about a lot, is gun control. Canada is just as likely to have crazy psychotics in Quebec or, you remember, tragically, in Montreal um, uh, several decades ago, right, when we had a mass shooting of those of women, in, uh, Mark uh, Mar- right, exactly. So clearly, we don't have we in Canada. Now I'm using the Canadian we, right? <laughs> Collect- Please, like- <laughs> we don't right. have any immunity from crazy violent psychos. We yep. have we have our crazy violent psychos. We can stake against anybody else. But when we have crazy violent uh, psychos, we tend to do a good job in recrafting laws that make it harder for those crazy violent psychos to get their hands on machine guns that enable them to kill a lot of people very rapidly, Yeah. much harder to do. In America, it is deliberately, and as a matter of policy, extremely easy, trivially easy to get your hands in the machine.
0: And there are just so many more of them.
2: Right. I get, so it's yeah. not a question of Canadians are virtuous and Americans are evil. We are exactly the same mix of good and bad impulses. It just is that the liberal tradition, and again, I use it not in the party sense, the liberal tradition in Canada makes people alert to the possibility, oh, we need to fix that. There's a problem. We need to fix it. And on the whole such problems tend to get fixed it's why quebec if i may say because this is a subject about which of course i feel passionately is quebecer is still in confederation because the problems of having a almost monolingual french uh, state alongside an english speaking one were addressed they were reformed we had bilingualism programs i'm always stunned you know when i'm walking around toronto and i see a, anything that's a federal the building a federal uh, parking lot, right? And you see the signs are in English and in French, right?
0: Whether you're in a province where anyone speaks French, French or not, it's
2: by law. It's got to be in English and in French. If you did try to do that in the United States, let's say it was English and Spanish, right? you yeah. would have. A horrible response. I think the Canadians should be immensely proud of that. It's a way of saying we have such respect yeah. for one of our founding people that even where nobody speaks the language, we are going to insist that you I have
0: know, it. I but you see this as a mark of us of being able to kind of like moderately always change and have a, a liberal tradition of... of
2: Reform, be, reform, reform.
0: Reform, reform, right. reform. I think you could just as easily argue that it's a constant adherence to balance at all costs, middle road at all costs, conservatism, keeping things on an even keel, and that the Liberal Party is liberal in name only. That really is about keeping, uh, you know, there is a family compact and there are people who, uh, you know, I'm, let, let's right. make sure that the next Trudeau can be prime minister as well. And and that that is almost more essential a Canadian way of doing things is making sure that we only as much as you need to. And, and Trudeau feels to me like the, the, the figurehead of that, of let's talk about reconciliation with Indigenous. People, but there's more boil water advisories than well, ever before right. on, on Native. On Reserves. the
2: other hand, I'm old enough to remember uh, where that stuff stood in the 1960s. Let's say, and you can't deny that there is enormous progress in awareness. I mean, just the names we use, you know, with uh, First Nations people, right, yeah. isn't itself a sign of a of a growing empathy in understanding the uh, the history. Of uh, those people, we don't say you know. It's still a thing that comes up that when I hear an American say Eskimo, I kind of flinch and get get offended, you know. Sure, and and, and,
0: and you still will hear I, I, Americans will throw around the word Indian, Indian, a, and a, a Indian, long. and Eskimo,
2: yeah. and Canadians won't, and yeah. Canadians really won't of of all political persuasions. And I see that as a as a positive thing. Look, liberalism is a conservative form of reform. It's not revolutionary, right? Yeah. And that's one of the things I was trying to say in that piece, right? that we envy revolutionary traditions because they're glamorous and they're violent, and they're heroic. That's why Hamilton is the biggest hit on Broadway. Sure. But there's a lot to be said in terms of the human results against revolutionary traditions and for the poor, boring, unglamorous traditions of reform. The one thing I would say, and this is one thing I'd be kind of evangelical about, you got to have a broader historical perspective. You have to think about the history of mankind writ large. You know, I did a lecture series last year at the Metropolitan Museum of Art called Jerusalem uh, 1000. It was about uh, Jerusalem in the year 1000. Beautiful show of the essential coexistence of Muslim and Jewish and Christian culture in Jerusalem in in that time. Mm -hmm. It was a forced coexistence. People didn't love each other. But nonetheless, on the whole, those three cultures and religions lived together. And by the end of the century, all of that was gone. It had been obliterated in a series of competitive massacres by the Crusades and by the counter-Crusades and so on. And... You become aware that those moments of social peace and pluralism in the history of mankind are incredibly rare and, and fragile, and, fra- and un- yes, exactly, unbelievably fragile. So, can we grumble about family compacts and and incestuous politics? Of course, that's mm-hmm. reasonable. Should we be aware that the existence of a relatively peaceful and pluralist country that stretches from one end of the continent to the other is an exceptional event in human history. Yeah, we should be aware of that, too.
0: We should. And, and you know, I, sometimes my grumblings, I think, can give the idea that I'm just here to say, well, we're not so great mm-hmm. after all, and, 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 you know, give Canada a black eye. My fear is for the fragility of that. I feel like we're not tested. We haven't had a 9-11 here. Whenever we have been tested, we've declared martial law in this country. So all of our conceptions of ourselves and our self-congratulation in Canada, I worry that it's just circumstantial and we'll go with the flow. We'll try to keep that middle path even as the world descends into lunacy. And you know, we're we're kind of exulting in this moment where we look so different than America. And I, I, I worry about the fragility of that.
2: Listen, I'm a, I'm a, was, uh, happened to be at the, and I wrote a piece about it. I don't know if you've got it in your, in your art there, but I, when, um, <laughs> what do you call it? When um, Come From Away, the Canadian musical opened on Broadway, yeah. they had a kind of gathering of those Canadians in New York And uh, Justin Trudeau was there, and he sat with Ivanka Trump. And I found that really disturbing. I found that really disturbing. I thought, this is a bad idea to play footsie with the fascists. I really did not think that was a a good or wise thing to do, because it's dangerous to do that. And there's that Canadian urge towards conciliation at all costs. And I agree with you. Look, the Canadian national sin is self-congratulation. You know, Mm -hmm. I, I tease Martha, my wife, that as she gets older, she becomes more and more like a... Middle-class Canadian girl, I call her Barb, you know, and you know we I call we call each other Barb and Gord, right? Because we're becoming real, you know. Yeah, that would be the, the name, <laughs> you know? right? Real middle-class Canadians. Yeah. And you know, in a perpetual cycle of conciliation and cheerful compromise, I see the comedy of that. I also see the weaknesses of that. I also have a large enough historical perspective to say, don't underestimate the fragility of those social compacts which we can take for granted and find encumbering even confining but which are great and rare and welcome exceptions in the horrible history of human beings Adam thank you delighted to be here
0: that's your Canada land show hope you enjoyed it you can email me about it at Jesse at com. I read everything you send me we are on Twitter at Canadaland. If you click like on our Facebook page, then our news stories show up in your Facebook newsfeed. Another way to get them is just to go to canadalandshow.com. Our crowdfunding site is at patreon.com slash canadaland. Why not check it out right now and have a look at how we're doing, how close we're getting to this Thunder Bay podcast goal. This episode was produced by Kevin Sexton. We offer this show for free to dozens of community and campus radio stations across this country. That is handled by CFUV 101.9 FM in Victoria. Visit them online at cfuv.ca. If you like what we do, please support us at patreon.com slash CanadaLand.